Hey everyone, welcome to episode 113 of the So This Is My Wife podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya. And before we start, I just want to say something really exciting is happening at Stimi because Stimi is now open to establishing strategic partnerships, which is really just a fancy way of saying Stimi episodes, past and future, now have promo slots available for purchase. So if you're interested in telling Stimi listeners what you're up to and how your brand can help them to live better, more productive and fulfilling lives, then do get in touch. Just drop me an email at sothismywife at gmail.com. Now, on to today's guest, Brian Pham. Brian is known for many things, including establishing the Asian Hustle Network with his now wife, Maggie. It is a 200,000 plus member strong super connected platform for Asian entrepreneurs and creatives around the world. But as with most steamy guests, Brian's journey has been anything but predictable or linear. In this episode, we learn about how having parents who escaped the Vietnam War to move to the US affected him, why investments and business were taboo during his childhood, how Brian learned about the importance of side hustles, spoiler alert, because he realized during the recession that companies don't care about you. How Brian then got into property investment and made $100,000 from his first sale. How he created the viral Asian Hustle Network. And by the way, in the first three weeks, they gained 1,000 followers. Then how Brian overcame some personal challenges. He was getting a ton of heat messages and he really wanted to quit after eight months. Also, they were in negative cash flow for years. How are they getting sponsorships? Why move to Southeast Asia and specifically Vietnam and so much more. So... If you're interested in side hustles, entrepreneurs, community growth, and Southeast Asia, then this is the steamy episode for you. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I learned that your parents actually escaped the Vietnam War and your mom always told you that they survived in the U.S. with $25. I imagine that must have really influenced you growing up. So what was your childhood like growing up there? I would say that my parents did a really good job in making sure that we were not missing anything, right? Even though in reality, if you look at hindsight 2020, we're missing a lot of things. We always had everything we needed and we always knew that we could compete with other people, like academically, in anything in life. They did a really good job of like making sure that we believe in ourselves, which I super appreciate as an adult. I imagine that hustle was very much the culture as well. I mean, like you're now in Vietnam. We spoke about it briefly. Everyone's hustling. They're working 24-7. Cafes don't even shut at all. Was it like that as well when you were growing up in LA? In my household, yes. Like my parents would find any way to like keep ourselves afloat just because they knew that they had to work twice as hard, right? They didn't come here with education. They didn't come here speaking the language. They came here and they were washing dishes at restaurants. They were washing cars. They did delivery at a furniture store. Any job possible kind of keep themselves going. And over time, like they were able to, to own their own business after years of struggle and years of sacrificing themselves for us. So when I talk to my parents, they're always like, make sure you live your life because if you start a family too early, like might be like us, <laughs> you know? Um, oh no. <laughs> maybe that's why I'm still not married or have a family yet. You know, our friends all have a family. 
But I think that I'm heavily influenced by my parents and what they tell me growing up. You said earlier your parents eventually ran their own business, but wasn't investments and business taboo in your childhood? Oh yes, my parents believed that the stock market was a huge way of gambling your money away, or like owning real estate was risky or something like that, right?、And、Even real estate—that's surprising. I know it's because they did own real estate themselves, and during the 2008 crash,、uh, we actually lost everything. And that really traumatized my parents because they were taught like real estate is like the best investment that you can make. But there's a lot more to real estate investing than just buying properties. You have to buy correctly, you have to buy in the right area, and all these things. I think they didn't really account for that. So that's also one factor. But then just growing up, the idea of investing scared me for the longest time. But because with my personality, when someone tells me I can't do something or I shouldn't do something, most likely I would do that thing. They kept telling me that I shouldn't invest. That sparked my curiosity and sparked. My interest to understand like what's so taboo about it. I started talking to my friends and talking to their parents, and they're like in the more wealthy part of town. So where I grew up is San Gabriel, and where most of my friends were growing up, they were in like Arcadia, like San Marino area, which is like upper middle class. And the thing that really caught my attention when I talked to their parents was, oh, we invest into the stock market, we own real estate. I'm like, wait a minute, like why is my parents telling me not to do those things? So I started looking into how money worked and four hundred one and all these things, and like really gauge my interest in that. So, given that you were interested in investments, why didn't you go into finance, but instead you went to computer science? Oh, that's a good, good question. I love how much you did research on my life. So when I graduated, it was two years after the O eight crash. So I graduated in two thousand ten. And during this time, there was no hecking way anyone could find a finance job during this time. For sure, <laughs> right? And even studying too. Like I would hear from my older classmates who were in finance couldn't find jobs like in Wall Street or find any like investment jobs. So I knew at that time I needed to pivot towards something safer. And it wasn't like computer science was something I was extremely passionate about. It was something that I Google at the moment. Because I was so desperate for like a safety net, I was so desperate to find something that I could find a job immediately after college. That when I Google what is like the top ten safest paying job in America, software engineering. This is like two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Software engineering was like number one. That's、and、amazing. Like, so you didn't even do coding. You just decided to go for the safest job. Yeah, I always wanted to have a job after college, right?、And、then I learned how to code and then became a software engineer <laughs> after college. That is amazing, and then you end up. I realized that you jumped from electronics to IBM, and you did say in one interview that you noticed that people were being fired and being let go, and that sort of had an、oh, yeah. impact on you, right? Tell、yeah. us about that. I felt like most of my early career was very turbulent. Anything from applying after college during like the worst time to apply to college, like for a job or after college, right? There was I remember applying for like a hundred jobs and only get like one interview. And that interview was like a pyramid scheme or a scam or something like that. And I was like, "This is like a really bad time to graduate." And then on top of that, when I finally made my way to like these big tech companies that I always admired, I don't want to name the tech companies I applied to, but I always admire them. And finally, when I got into working in there, I was like, "This is the worst time to work for these companies because everyone's going to like tech layoffs. All my mentors are getting let go." Every department is cutting resources. That was my early impression of like my professional career. It's really hard to find a job, and now I'm in the job, and job security is like is out the door. And that really taught me like, shoot, I really need to like find something else to keep myself going. 
because I might be in those positions one day. I might be in my late 40s, late 50s, late 60s, being let go. And mine, it's a different time period, right? Back then, there's a lot of emphasis on company loyalty, staying there the rest of your life. They're going to take care of you. These guys were at these companies for 10, 20, 30 years, and they were let go. And a lot of them have not fixed a resume in like 10, 20 years. And that part scared me because I go get dinner with them. I'm like, dude, I don't know why they didn't let me go. Why did they let you go? And then we finally came to a very obvious answer. It's because I'm a lot cheaper salary-wise. And I can do twice the amount of work because I'm hungry to prove myself. That really taught me a lot about company loyalty and working for myself and having a safety cushion and really learning how to invest correctly because I don't want that to be me in the future. And I'm sure people listening would resonate because that's happening again. I mean, we just went through that whole Google layoff and everyone is talking about basically the same thing. I was there for 20 years. I was the most important person. I have no idea why I was let go. It's just a total gamble. I'm interested. Once you had that awareness, what did you end up doing? I think that's when you started your site hustles. Yeah, yeah. That's when I started dabbling a little bit. Mm. I was just still very, very scared, right? I didn't know what the heck I was doing, but I was determined to like make a few investments through my paycheck every single time I got paid. I would just buy like whatever. I knew for a fact, if I had money in the stock market, I would pay more attention to it. Before I was doing all these hypothetical things, I was like, what if I bought this stock and how would it do in like the next two months or three months? And then what I find is that I keep forgetting to like check up on it or read up in the news or something. But until I had money and at that time, I thought it was a lot of money. I had like $2,000 in the stock market. I'm like, oh my God, like it's mine. This is like post-recession, by the way. <laughs> so <laughs> every, every single dollar was like a lot to me. Okay. I was like, oh my God, I finally have $2,000 in whatever Merrill Lynch bank account I had to buy. And this is like before Robinhood days. I finally had skin in the game. And for some reason, like triggered something in my mind that I had to pay attention to the stock market. So because of that, I learned how to like look at the numbers correctly, figure out why stocks were dropping, read out the news and listen to annual reports, quarterly reports. Why are they making the decision? Why is the stocks dropping? Why is confidence falling in that? And I became more invested into this knowledge. So I started making heavier investments. And before I knew it, like I was relatively comfortable with like the way the money worked. I knew that there was no such thing as getting rich overnight. I knew that everything took time. I knew that everything took research. And there was no such thing as a true passive income out there. I always acted to a certain extent. And that's what that experience taught me. Didn't you also start selling stuff on Amazon and you end up losing $22,000? What's the story behind yes. that? Yes. Yes. So that was the other dabble. So when I started investing into the stock market, I was about 22, 21-year-old. And that gave me a lot of confidence, cocky confidence, right? I'm like, I can do anything I set my mind to. I made a little bit of money, obviously. And I threw that money into my next venture. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's coming millionaire online, right? Everyone's making a lot of money. You just buy stuff in Alibaba and post it on Amazon. I did that and did not turn out really well for me, <laughs> obviously. Why? I mean, retrospectively, um, why did it not work? There's a lot of things that I didn't know. I didn't know about the tariff taxes. I didn't know about import tax. I didn't know about quality inspection. I just kind of assumed that it was so passive, like watching all these gurus and YouTubers and like making millions of dollars selling Amazon. There are people out there making that much money, but that person isn't me. It was a pretty expensive lesson for me at the time, but that really taught me to like really take things slowly. This is like a time where I thought that I could become a millionaire by the time I was like 24 or 25, right? I'm like, if I do this right, I can become a millionaire by 24 or 25. That taught me like, hey, take a step back, slow down, 
learn things from the basics and do it right. Life is so much longer than what you think it is. You need to take a step back and just do it right. And I think you sort of took that lesson as well to your next venture when you moved to the Bay, which was in real estate. So what's the story behind that? Yeah, yeah. So when I moved to the Bay Area, I did not intend to be in real estate, although I was very, very curious. That was like the next thing I was really curious about. When I got to the Bay, I realized how expensive everything was. (laughs) I realized that even though I was making six figures at my software engineering job, I wasn't living very comfortably. Like I was still penny pinching at every single corner. I was like, dude, I can't even rent a room and go eat out. It's like, this is terrible. <laughs> you know, everyone's telling me how like six figures is a lot of money. I'm like, dude, my money's not going far at all. This is terrible. Luckily, I was able to reconnect with one of my old college buddies because of one of my coworkers. She saw a post on Facebook that he was subleasing a bedroom out of his house. So he gave me the best price possible that I could ever imagine. Utilities included, my room only cost me $600 a month. Oh, that's really good. Absurd in the Bay Area, right? So that actually allowed me to like save money at a pretty fast rate because I was making six figures, paying six hundred rent. I wasn't really eating out. I was cooking, eating in, and really like save money there. It's funny because at that time, me and my new landlord slash roommate, we broke up with our girlfriends around the same time. So we're like really sad dudes around the house. I remember this is around March of like 2016 or something like that. Or 2015. Like he walked into my room. He was like, hey, I'm going to go to this real estate meetup. Do you want to go with me? And I said, yeah, let's do it. Let's be real estate investors. <laughs> and that's how like, that's how I got started into real estate. And it became a whole adventure for me. It's so fun. Didn't you make almost $200,000 from your first deal? I did. I did. So this is back in 2017. So about two years. So it took us about two years of just getting the courage to do something. Because in our mind, it was so much money at the time. It was like 60,000, 70,000 of our own money to put into something. That was a lot of money at the time, right? We had cold feet for so long. Like we kept saying, yes, oh, we're going to do it. No, 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 no. Yeah, we're going to do it. No, 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 no. And we kept getting scared. So finally... I did it because I was motivated by my roommate. I think at the time, he just went out there and purchased two investment properties in Florida. And I figured, you know what? Like, I can always make the money back. I feel like I need to learn. And learning what I learned from being in the stock market at such a young age, I was like, the best way for me to learn is put my money in the game. So I did the most educated, uneducated thing ever. I trust a bunch of strangers online. Oh, wow. So there was this online forum called Baker Pockets. And someone posted a deal inside of this forum saying that hey, he has this real estate deal and he's looking for a money partner. Funny enough, I messaged him thinking that he was someone else. That was my first mistake. <laughs> and then luckily he turned out to be a guy with full integrity. It's funny because I think a couple of years ago, I dug up the contract that I signed because now that at the time I was more savvy this time, I looked at the contract, I'm like, holy cow, I can't believe I signed this piece of paper. It was like literally like one paragraph saying that we're business partners and that I lent him this money so we could get into this deal together. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was like the worst contract ever. I'm like, luckily this guy's not a fraud. I would have lost like 60, 70K there. So lo and behold, the first property we bought was in South Central LA, which is at the time an up and coming area. It's okay area now. It's not too bad as it was before. We bought it for, I believe like 375K. And it's funny because I checked on the same property 
a few years later and it's like worth over a million dollars now I'm like, oh, damn, wow it's crazy for like that area so we bought it we fixed it up really fast three four months and then we sold it for like seven hundred and sixty thousand dollars so we ended up netting after repairs like two hundred thousand dollars and that was like the fastest amount of money i've ever made in my life like not only did i get my initial return back but i got my net profit from that and like a summer's work and that was like well i can be in this game and that actually gave me enough money to come back to the bay area to start investing there didn't you want to go into this full time surprisingly my mentality at the time was like i need to have a job this is like a few years out of the recession a few years out of like watching my parents lose everything the whole idea of leaving my job was completely not an option like i need to have a job so much of my identity was tied to my job I was able to finally do things that I couldn't do growing up. Nowadays, it's pretty normalized to me. But talking about this on this podcast, like growing up, going to a decent restaurant like Denny's or something in America or at IHOP or Norm's was a special occasion for my family, right? It was like our birthday or because we got like a good grade or a graduation that we went to these restaurants. We look back on it and most people be like, oh, wow, was a special occasion? Such a cheap restaurant. But to me at the time, it was so much money for my parents. They couldn't take us out to these places very often. So those places always hold like a special place in my heart. And that's kind of the type of childhood that I had. And finally, when I started making money, working as a software engineer, especially in the Bay Area, and making all this extra money, I can finally compensate. I had to use the word compensate. Finally compensate for a lot of things I was missing growing up. And then I didn't have a lot of clothes. I didn't have a lot of shoes. I had like one pair of shoes, one backpack that I wore from fifth grade to high school. I finally got a new backpack in college. And then it's like very like frugal mindset. But finally, when I had all those things, I wanted to test my limit to be like, hey, I belong in this quote unquote successful world. And then I want to stay there. And that's the reason why it was so hard for me to leave my job initially. So what went wrong? Why didn't you stay? It's going to be my own opinion here. But I think that once you're less reliant on your job, you start seeing what's wrong with your job. If that makes sense. Like, is that all that life is? Yeah. Like you start questioning everything because you get criticized by your boss or something goes wrong. For example, when I used to get my performance review, I would ask to be a leader because I got a taste of it managing my own projects, right? I was dealing with contractors, I was dealing with lenders, I was dealing with people reporting to me, making sure the project was going on correctly. So I felt like I was starting to realize my inner leadership. And I like that feeling. I was always like giving back 115% to the corporation that I was working at mentality. Like whatever skill set I learned, I wanted to apply it at work and be the best employee that I ever can. So because I was gaining all these leadership abilities doing my side hustles, I wanted to become an engineering leader. I wanted to become an engineering manager. I wanted to become an engineering director. That was like my end goal. The more that I was talking to my manager about it, and they kept brushing me off. They was like, hey, we don't know if you're ready for this. We think you're lacking leadership ability. We don't think you're able to handle the stress. And even though I didn't say it, I was thinking to myself, handling stress, like I have basically have two jobs right now. <laughs> you know? Like I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Did and they have any looking, idea? Did they know that you no, had no one had any idea that I was like making more of my salary as my side hustle? And that part started to upset me a little bit. And I started to look into it, wondering why, like, is it just me? Maybe they're right. Maybe I do lack leadership abilities. So I started like practicing my leadership skills more during my side hustle. And taking on even more projects, but still I get the same critique and the same results. Like, hey, you're lacking leadership abilities. I'm like, is this me? So I started talking to my coworkers, 
And to my surprise, when I talked to my Asian coworkers, I hear the same thing. I was like, wow, like you guys too? What is going on here? And at the time, it was like 2017, 2018, the joke between me and my coworkers at the time was that San Francisco was getting very, very white. Oh, tech is getting so white, you know? Then that eventually led me down the path of looking to the bamboo ceiling and all the things I'm doing with Asian Hustle Network right now. So at what point do you decide, I don't actually need a job. I don't need to tie myself to this employee identity. Yeah, that was probably when I was 26, I realized that I was very, very close to becoming a millionaire. I was probably like one or 200 grand away from being a millionaire at age 26. I don't know. It's something that was inside of me. It was like, if I make the jump, I think I can get there faster. I think I've become a millionaire before 30. This is like a really cool goal to have. There was something that happened at work that really irritated me. And then I put in my two week notice. And that was like a huge spurring moment. I didn't even think about the consequences. I didn't even think about like what I just did. I just did it. You know, oh, wow. Like, this is crazy. But then I wasn't scared because I knew like I was still making money some other ways and taking care of my own lifestyle. So it kind of led me down the first time I did entrepreneurship, which we talked about earlier <laughs> before the podcast. That's amazing. I heard that at this time you decided to travel to sort of figure out who you were. Is this the same period as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a little bit after. Let's talk quickly about my time doing this full-time. I did this full-time for about a year, year and a half. Things are going really well. I think at one point we did like 15 or 16 projects. That's massive. Yeah. So this is a guy that was never comfortable spending $2,000 five years earlier to now borrowing like millions. I was borrowing a few million dollars to do my projects. And I felt completely comfortable doing that. And it's just like, I don't know what was going on at the time, but I felt like this was my time to shine. Like there was an inner voice in my head. I was like, this is your time. Like you can't miss this moment. You need to seize the moment and take advantage of every time. I think a part of it was like straight youthfulness and ignorance because half the things that we bought, we should have not bought. Because up to that point, everything we touched was like the Midas touch. Like everything we touched made money for us. And we got overconfident that we can turn around any property and fix anything. But of course, like any overconfidence in any investment styles is detrimental to the long term, to any gain you're ever going to make. So during that time, I was able to take some time off to travel and figure myself out. And when I came back, everything blew up. <laughs> you know? That's when I started losing. This was the 2018-19 period, right? Yeah, 2018-19. That's when I came back to my software engineering job. And I stayed there for a year for leaving again and starting Asian Hustle Network. Wow. Wasn't this the part where you left, you came back, but you got minor depression because you were trying to figure out what? Yeah. Of life was like, what was your yes. mental state at the time? It was interesting because I feel like at that time, everything started like the way the world works started like clicking in my head. I realized how unfair the world was. Why is it me in this position? It's not fair to people who are much smarter than me and better than me. And I struggled with that for such a long time. This huge imposter syndrome that I came from this super poor immigrant mindset. The parents are really poor. I was really poor growing up. And uh, I feel like I was one mistake away from being homeless. That was my mentality for most of the time. And I felt like everything that happened to me, I didn't deserve. And partially it's because I felt like it was because of people I was hanging out with at the time. Because a lot of people didn't see any of the things I did at the time as being possible. And then looking back, it's like, they're not bad people. I don't blame them. I don't blame anything. I think that when someone around you, you haven't seen the light yet and you haven't seen what's possible. 
then to you is always impossible mentally. And because I was so lucky to be around people in real estate that I saw making millions of dollars every month or whatever it is, I was like, I can do that too. And when I came back and I was still hanging out with my other group of friends and they were just going on their daily lives and complaining about little things. And that's when I really questioned like, man, like, I, do I really belong here? And I started questioning my place in the world. And I started to think about like, what is the meaning of life? Because if people work really hard to get to like financial freedom and they're able to do this and that, isn't that a good thing? Why do I feel so empty inside? And then I realized like it's because I need to find my North Star. I need to find my purpose. I need to find my why, right? Everything I did to this point was only to prove to myself that I was worthy, but it was never truly my why. I love that you said that because obviously that's how and why I started this podcast and why why's in it. Because I realized after a while when I was doing law, I could see where my future was and I just couldn't imagine being there. And then the question then becomes so what else is out there? All my friends are lawyers. All my colleagues are lawyers. I don't know anyone who isn't a lawyer and I don't know any yeah. other path. So for you, you were in a similar state. How did you figure it out? What was your nostra? How did you find that answer? Yeah, it took a lot of, I guess, like darker times. And I think as human beings, whenever things are going too well, I think mentally we always invent a new problem to like overcome. Because this is the point of life, right? It's like the yeah. point of life is to find more adversity to figure yourself out. During this time, I kept asking myself, why am I doing this? What makes me happy? Why am I doing this? What makes me happy? And I went down to like every single thing I did. And I think the key to like figuring it out is awareness of your own actions and more importantly, your own feelings. What feels right to you? What feels good to you? What gives you a reason to smile? For me, the more that I interact with people, the more I realized that that is the Asian community for me. And it's largely because I grew up in an area that was predominantly Asian in LA. Now that I'm in Asia, obviously everyone's Asian, but obviously finding an Asian dominated city in America is actually pretty rare. And because of that experience, I really never saw myself as a minority. I always saw myself as a majority, to be honest. And for retrospective, I think my high school only had like three white people. Oh, that's really rare. <laughs> yeah. I think the rest are like Latinos and Asian people. That's how I saw the world, which is like an inverse of everything. Essentially, you grew up in an area where there were lots of Asians and you felt so, sort of like me. I grew up in Southeast Asia. We are not minorities. We are the majority. So you found that the Asian community was something that you really cared about. But it's one thing to say, I care about this community. Another thing to go, yeah. what am I going to do? So how did you figure that out? Because I did hear from an interview, you said quite a lot. You would think about something like HN for a year, a year and a half, but you didn't yeah. know the answer. So how did yeah. you find the answer? I think at the time I was asking myself, like, what was important to me? And because I always saw myself as majority in my own city. Being Asian American and being majority of the city allows you to see things from a different lens. And I think it's because I saw how divided the Asian community really is. In what sense? I saw like how the Chinese people all stuck together, all the Koreans always together, all the Vietnamese people all stuck together. And for me, I have always been a very curious person for the majority of my life. And I will sit down with every community member, anyone, talk to them. Honestly, the first thing doesn't, doesn't even cross my mind that they're like different Asian people. To me, they're just like Asian people. And when they share their stories to me, I realize that we all want the same thing. We all have the same values. 
but there's this hatred towards each other, which I don't understand. And at the time, I knew that if we came together as a community, like, we can be so much stronger than that. And then a little bit after that, I was talking to my fiance now, Maggie, who's also my co-founder of Asian Hustle Network. I was talking to her over and over, like, I want to do something with the Asian community, but I don't know what it is. And I literally was like writing stuff on the whiteboard and thinking about it at night. And literally, what were you writing? Home. What were some of the ideas at the time? I was starting writing down the problems of the Asian community. The first thing I wrote down was like competition. And the next thing was like zero sum game. And I started writing down like the good things. Like we are naturally very caring people. We're very community oriented. We're very driven. And I started to look at all those things. And the solution I found is it's because we don't talk to each other. And once we talk to each other, we realize it doesn't matter if you're Filipino, Malaysian, Singaporean, or Chinese, Vietnamese, Japanese, whatever it is. Like we inherently want to trust and care for each other. And the only way to do that for us is to really put aside our differences and what we believe the stereotype is of the other culture and understand that we're all much more similar than we think we are. So you had this idea, bring everyone together, but how were you going to actualize it? I heard as well that you had the idea in April and you launched in November. So what was that period of ideation and launch like? Oh boy, that was a lot of ideation. Like we, <laughs> I try to remember, it's so long ago now. It's like almost four years ago. I just remember that was like probably the best time. We had a feeling that it was going to be something big. It was going to be something mm-hmm. great. That it was a missing void in the community. But we had like no idea like how big and how broad it would ever get. I'm talking to you right now in Vietnam. Like you would have asked me this five years ago, I'll be sitting in like my office working my job and be like, dang, I just lost a lot of money in real estate. This <laughs> 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 is like absurd to me to even be in this position. So we're trying out a lot of different things, but eventually we figured because of subtle Asian traits and how viral they were going a few months before us, yeah, that Facebook group was the way to go. Mm-hmm. And originally we did not want to be the ones that were starting this movement we just wanted to take a back seat and support in any way that we could we actually never saw ourselves as the leader of this movement it was like really surprising when i was like oh crap i'm in the driver's seat am i the right person to stir the wheel (laughs) 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 so how did you end up pulling the trigger was there a push Yes, there was a push. This is a funny story too. <laughs> it's kind of one that you don't expect. So we actually share the idea and premise of Asian Hustle Network inside another Asian Facebook group. And we got our post rejected. Oh no. And we're just like, so out of a moment of spite, we're just like, we're going to create our own Facebook group. We're going to be better than them. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. And then yeah. the funny thing is that you created the Facebook group, but you already had a clear mission at the time that hasn't changed to yeah. this day. It's still the same mission almost four years later. Yeah. That's amazing. Tell us how you came up with that mission. There must have been a lot of discussions and ideation again behind that. Yeah. It was basically what I thought would be everlasting for our community, for any generation. Yeah. Right. I never wanted a mission that was selfish. I never wanted a mission that was short-term. I wanted something that was necessary for my future kids and grandkids to be a part of and see. I was thinking from that point of view. And that mission is to be able to support, uplift, and amplify each other's story. Because the more that we support, the more that we amplify, the more that we listen to each other, the community will never fall apart. Like any healthy relationship in life, 
when you stop communicating with your partner, that's when things go really bad. And that's the reason why we kept our mission the way it is. This is the very beginning. Hey, everyone. Just a gentle reminder that steamy episodes like this one, and they're open to sponsorships. And this is one of the spots that you can get. To be honest, Steamy is not going to accept everyone because we want to make sure that your mission aligns with the interests of the Steamy community. So yes, dear listeners, I'm putting you first. But if you're interested, please do drop an email at sothismywai at gmail.com and let's start chatting. All right, now let's get back to this episode with Brian Pham. I wanted to pick up the word story you said earlier. Story was very much inspired by your visit with Maggie to the Meiji Shrine as well. But how did you yeah. think that you were going to share the story in a community? Yeah, so basically the Meiji Shrine was a huge component of Asian Hustle Network. When we went to the Meiji Shrine, I wasn't expecting to be captivated by all the stories on the wooden tablets. It was interesting because I didn't know these people they had their names on the tablet, which obviously didn't really mean much to me because I don't know who they are. But it really touched me because people were like, hey, like I'm about to take my college entry exam. My parents worked so hard for me to get to this moment. Please wish me luck. Or it's like, hey, like my mom has cancer right now. You know, it's just sharing all these deep feelings or people are sharing about their hardships or what they're grateful for. And I was just so captivated, even though I didn't know who they were and I spent hours like reading through almost every single one that I could. I felt so compelled to like try to help these people, but I don't know who they are. And that was like the feeling I got that of storytelling, right? You don't know these people, but yet you still want to contribute and help. And that's when I realized I wanted to be the first one to share my story inside this community that I'm building. Because I fully believe that as an organizer, as a leader, like you have to be the one setting the trend sometime. And once you send the trend, like, you just watch your community like wow you and it continues to like, impress me every single day. So you identify your North Stack Asian community, you figure out how with the stories, and then you launch HN as a screw you moment. What happened yeah. after that? <laughs> it has grown far beyond my expectations of anything I've ever imagined that a Facebook group can ever do. This Facebook group has evolved into a corporation. We are now incorporated in Singapore, Australia, United States. We have our own venture fund. We have a nonprofit arm. This was all from a Facebook group, which is insane. Yeah. What were the early days like? Because I read that it was rapid growth. What, 1,000 members in three days? And yeah. it was 28,000. It went bonkers. Like within a few hours, like we had a few hundred people join. And then later that day or a few days later, it was like a thousand people. Did you get people from that group that rejected you as well? They eventually caught on. And we called <laughs> them a call. But I don't want to name any names. Yeah, I, sure. I love them. They're cool. They're cool with me now. Yeah, it went completely viral. And we realized that at the first moment where I knew that this was a lot bigger than what I thought it was, is when people started referring to the community as a now as a thing that's not a part of me, which I'm wearing the hat right now. People are like, oh, thanks so much for creating on, on changed my life, right? HN changed my life. And I was like, this is so crazy. Like <laughs> it's living and breathing without me, like helping it, right? And that's when I kind of knew, like I wanted to keep this going and that opportunities like this will never really happen that frequently again. And this is before like what we're seeing right now. I think what we're going through right now, it's like an Asian renaissance. We're seeing a lot of like different organizations organizing cool things. And 
like addressing all these things that were wrong with the Asian American, Asian Australian, Asian Canadian, Asian European communities. When you really think about it, even four and a half years ago, there was nothing really out there like this. And I really thought to myself, there has to be all the right elements for something like this to ever happen again. And I knew that if Asian Hustle Network ever went away one day, it will set our community back. And I don't want to set our community back. Right? I want to continue building on top of this. I want to build a brand and a culture where we're okay with competition and we're okay supporting other people because at the end of the day, we're trying to make the world a better place. And that's our goal. Do you think that on Sukhoff, because right place, right time, no one else was doing it? Because you said as well, at the time, people who were really well-known were also coming in, getting their own people to join us, which makes no sense when you think about it, when it's just a brand new Facebook group with nothing and they're staking their personal reputation to bring friends in to this new group. Yeah, we feel like we were right place and right time. I think that if we would start another Facebook group nowadays, it would probably not go as viral. Just very, very lucky. And we never take anything for granted. I saw a statistic out there that 30% of second founded companies succeed. And it comes to show how much luck and environment and elements are a huge factor in pushing things through. I remember I had one viral moment. And the first thing I thought was, wow, that's amazing. Secondly, what on earth do I do? How do I jump onto this trend? So for you, I imagine you and Maggie must have been going Wow, people are really, really jumping in, thousands upon thousands of people. I'm freaking out. What do I do? What were your thoughts at the time? What did you do? The first thought was like, how to build deeper connection between the community members. So Armour State hosting our first two events was thinking too small. We're like, no one's going to come out to an event. No one's going to come out. So at first, we picked a venue that fit 30 people. And then (laughs) we posted it on the Facebook group. And we had the whole place signed out. In like 10 seconds, we're like, oh no, what's going on? <laughs> it's going by too quickly. And then we kept bumping it up. So we bumped it up to 100 and we posted it. And like, it'll be gone in like 15 minutes. It's like, oh my God, what's going on? So the first event we host was like 600 people. That's huge. Yeah. And the second event we host in LA ever was like a thousand people. And we're like, oh my God, why are there so many people coming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah so why were they coming what were they looking for they're looking for a sense of community and they're looking a way to support each other and listen to each other and network with each other it was crazy like the amount of people that were making trips down from cities i would never expect places i have never been people i never met they're making trips down i would ask them like why are you guys here this is my imposter syndrome talking i'm like this is nothing important like why are you guys here and people really resonate with like the mission that we're trying to do, which is really like to support and uplift and be this really, really warm brand that really cares about you. That was so important to me to like be so endearing and caring to the community. And what makes us different at the time was we were trying to try figure out like help in any way possible without asking for anything in return. We never want to do that. So how were you creating this brand, this whole comfort belonging feeling i think it really started with a lot of credit to the community i think it started with the people that were sharing their story it was like a domino effect right there were high level influence people that were sharing their story there are people who were just starting out sharing their story and regardless of who was sharing their story everyone was treated with the same level of respect everyone was treated with the same level of integrity and dignity which is really important 
and no one ever criticized or judged anything in the community, which made it a very, very safe space for you to share your story, ask questions, and be yourself. And we quickly learned that, like most things in life, if you don't take time to nourish it or take care of it, it can quickly go bad really fast, including healthy communities, including healthy relationships. If you don't spend the time to work in a relationship, it goes bad. And we quickly learned that we need to keep our community going and we need to constantly remind people what we're about. Otherwise, you know, over time people forget and over time people do take you for granted and what you're trying to work on. So how do you nurture that relationship? How do you make sure people don't just take you for granted? It's definitely been a very humbling and grateful four years building this. You get smarter over time but when people reach out and talk to you what their intentions are. Because I realized that if you're li- able to listen to the fine lines, you really understand if you're truly there to help you or you're truly there to like seek your own benefit. At first, I did not have the skill set because I didn't talk to enough people in my life. And I figured that everybody had a really good intention and you quickly learned that that wasn't the case. And then that really pushed us in the corner where it's like, is this something I want to do for the rest of my life? There are a lot of times where I did wonder, like, should I be doing other things? Because sometimes, you know, you feel the stress of the community, especially during COVID. Well, you wanted to quit within the first eight months as well, right? Yeah, it was taking a huge toll on mental health. I couldn't deal with so many messages. I couldn't deal with the stress. I couldn't deal with being thrown into this position because fortunately and unfortunately for us, like, we have grown pretty rapidly during the pandemic years. Also, we were also thrown into a leadership position where people were looking towards myself and Maggie. There's a lot of crime happening in the Asian community. What is Asian also network doing? Honestly, at that time, I didn't know what to do. Like, I wanted to do something, but I didn't know enough. So I started reading history and looking at like other, the Black community, for example, understanding how do they deal with like oppression and rising crime against their community. Luckily, there was a person that posted, and she ended up being my co-founder. Shanghanabusa. At that time, there was a huge misinformation that you ate Chinese food, you get COVID or something. Chinese businesses were suffering a lot. All the Chinatowns were empty as heck. Michelle posted in the community, she's like, hey, someone should organize a food drive and we'll go order food from these restaurants. So I saw that. So I ended up reaching out to her to be like, hey, Michelle, I think that's a really good idea. We should find a way to work with each other and make it more sustainable. And I said to her, like, I think this needs to be more permanent. How about creating a nonprofit? And that's when she brought in our other co-founder, Tammy Cho. So Tammy has a lot of experience as a tech founder and both as a nonprofit founder. And even though she's a little bit younger than me, like four or five years, she had the maturity as someone who's much older than me, right? And we understood that it was best to make Tammy the CEO of this nonprofit. Just hates a virus. Yes. Ends up being hate is a virus. What are the lessons learned from running a movement? Oh, lots of <laughs> things. I learned that everything that we're facing right now has not been new in human history. I learned that we need to actually take time to realize that there have been organizations fighting for these things for decades. How do we re-engage with them? How do we reconnect with them? How do we learn from them? Because I feel like the problem is a lot of times we don't talk to the older generation. And obviously, there's a lot of different factors, ageism, culturalism, different ideas, don't have time. I think that there's a lot for us to like create resources and pass down the knowledge because we never know when we need it. 
I felt so supported during hate the virus times because we were talking to the Muslim community. How did they deal with the rising hate crimes against them during the 9-11 attacks? And people were saying all Muslims are terrorists. You know, we reached out to the black community as well. They were like nothing but support. They taught me personally so much about activism and the importance of having representation in government and then the importance of supporting rallies and being able to speak up. This is nothing I learned in any textbooks. This is like not even imagined. Like my life was going to even be anything remotely like this. And finding myself coming onto a Stop Asian Hate rally in front of thousands of people, feeling very, very strong emotions, listening to my every word was like a holy moly moment where it's like, whoa, this is like insane. This is like some Martin Luther King, Malcolm X moment, but not anything near their greatness. But I kind of thought of them in my head as I was talking the stage. But how do you go from being on that high, thousands listening to you, and going from there to saying, okay, this is the real world measurable impact of what we're doing. It's not just words out there. And it's a long-term that is impact. A really, that is a really, really good question. I think the long-term impact for us is how do we continue providing the resources and knowledge to people who want to host their own rallies and get-togethers? That is a proper KPI for us. It's like, we don't want to be the ones organizing everything. But if you're willing to organize, we'll lend you our help. We'll lend you our brand. We'll lend you everything we know. And still today, like I'm very grateful because I stepped away from hate virus to focus on the Asian Hustle Network. I'm still very grateful that Tammy and Michelle have done a phenomenal job running the organization. And every time I check LinkedIn, I see very strong educational posts. I see a lot of fellows and volunteers on the nonprofit side. And everyone's really passionate about making sure that our voices are heard and the hate crimes like this will continue to drop, even though it has not been dropping, but you know, we're trying to do our best on our side. So I would love to go back to Asian Hustle Network again. And mm-hmm. one of the things I told you earlier as well resonated with me because I'm sort of building my own little community as well, meeting as well. And I noticed that you said in-person events are very important for you. I mean, organizing an event. It's a lot of work and there are lots of little elements you have to think of. The place, what kind of food, drinks, how do you organize? How do you make sure everyone feels belonged and heard and they walk away and they actually remember the people they spoke to? You have hundreds, so that makes it even harder. What are some of the things that you found worked in running an event? You need to remind people why you have the event. I think it's very important to set the mood. To be like, this is the point, this is the mission of our event, this is the mission of organizations, this is the reason why we have this. And I think it's super important to to remind people before you create the event, as you're getting up to the event and during the event. Because I think that as crazy as it sounds, once you set your core values, people follow them. Once you set, like, this is a street supporting, listening to each other, networking event, people take a different approach to it. Whereas if you don't set any criteria, people automatically go to like, I'm taking everything mode. Where it's like, what can I learn from you? Can you be my investor? Blah, blah, blah. I think that's so crazy psychologically. And all these things that I think about when I was like in a company where I look at the like core values inside, the pillars and everything, that seriously subconsciously affects how you deal with yourself and how you like, treat people around you. I wonder, and this is just a guess, I feel as though in your community, you don't really have all that many people who are just coming in and wanting to take. And I say this because I know this in my community as well. Lots of people come every single time I organize, there's almost always new people. 
but they all come wanting to share and wanting to give. They all seem to yeah. have the same core values, even though they are all total strangers. And I wonder if yeah. that's been the case for you as well. Definitely not the case. We actually had it. <laughs> we have in, hundreds of people, though. <laughs> we have it in block letters on the group, and we actually make it so whenever you join the Facebook group,、mm. one of the requirements that you have to answer is, "Would you give first before taking in the community?" That's one of the things that we require. Maybe that core value has spilled over in the last three or four years, but it wasn't like that at the very beginning. I remember distinctly someone posting, "Hey guys, like I actually inherit some money and I'm trying to make an investment. Can you guys give me some advice?" And to my surprise, people were like, "Why didn't you share you my idea? You're just gonna take my idea." I was like, "What the heck is going on?" So like, we had to like, no, we not block, but we had to like. Tell people like, hey, we want to have more people believe in the abundance mindset. That it's not a zero sum game. That everybody can win. That there's so much money out there. Like you don't need to withhold anything. And over time, it became more and more open. But that what I would call a wild, wild west type of moment of age and days. What is your trick to? And this applies for people listening who are attending events as well. Going to an event, hundreds of people, strangers out there. And making sure that you actually connect with people, and you walk away not、yeah. going. I remember meeting lots of new faces. I don't remember any one、yeah. of them. I think the biggest advice I have is going to a networking event and going against all beliefs. It's kind of expect to get nothing. We go under the expectation to give and not take anything. You're going to get a lot more out of it, right? Because now you're open up your heart to listen up to people. And ironically, as you open up your heart with someone else, open up their heart. You share things that connect on a deeper level. What have been the most surprising moments for you yourself that have arisen out of all these events? People have reached out to me and said, "Hey, I, thank you so much for Asian Hustle Network. I found my wife." <laughs> I no, found my husband. I was like, "Wow, I didn't know we're also in dating community as well." I'm so happy for you guys <laughs> because we've been around for at least four years now. This has been a long enough time for people to literally meet at the beginning and now marry three or four years later. Soon they will have kids too. <laughs> It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I actually met my wife at one of your first events. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's amazing. That's why you should never turn your invitation down if you get to go to a networking event. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. You have also said before you're always constantly looking to innovate. What have you、yeah. innovated? How do you come up with these ideas? It's just natural curiosity of mine, right? Because I believe that nothing lasts forever. I believe in like doing things right and doing things slow. I believe that over time, whenever you do something right, you're going to see a lot of fruitful conversations and results that you want to see. I found a team right now that's very passionate as much as I am. We're able to still talk to community members very often, and I don't even call it innovating. I would call it improving ourselves and evolving our community, because every generation, every people, every year, the priorities of the community changes a lot. And because the priority changes, the community has to rise up to the occasion to address those needs. When you're following the needs of your community, I wouldn't even call that innovation. I would call that like stepping or evolving your community to address like the modern struggles and whatever things that comes up during that year or time. When you're running something like this, you're doing it full time. Is you have to think about the fact that this is ultimately a business. You have to make it profitable. 
You said yeah. to be approaching 2021 that you are actually in negative cash flow almost every month, which is very concerning because <laughs> you will be ready for a couple of years. How did you figure that answer out? Yeah, this is not fun to answer, but I feel like when your back is against the wall and your passion is so strong, you're going to figure out things that will never occur to you if things are going right. And you'll never do things you would ever do if you're not desperate. You will never make those extra phone calls. You will never make those extra emails if your back was not against the wall. And because our back was against the wall half the time, we really want to keep this community going. We did everything we could. And we talked to a lot of different people. We got a lot of different ideas. And I feel like the universe works in a really funny way. Is that when you want something bad enough, it'll find a way to keep it going. Like we just heard about things about to hit the fan. You get like a miracle connection to somebody. I was like, hey, I'll pay you a few thousand dollars for this. Like, oh, you'll pay that? Like, for real? <laughs> you know, like, and you realize, like, it's not a bad thing trying to keep yourself going when you know that in your heart, the mission of the organization is for the greater good. And we got to a point where people understand that nothing is free in life. And that if you want to continue moving, it needs to be a way that's sustainable for all parties and all partners. What were some of the things that you did? When your back was against the wall, that proved to be profitable and turned things around. I reached out to people in the past that scared me. Like their position of power scared me. They had way much more experience and influence than I could ever imagine. Right? And you asked them for a sponsorship? Like what was the pitch? How did you do it? I was always shy to ask for money straight up, but I would always build a relationship with them first. In terms of like asking you to speak at an event or a podcast or whatever. And once he kind of understood what we're about, then the next question kind of evolves naturally. You're like, how can I help you? And you're like, hey, I have this event coming up and we're looking for sponsorship. And like, yeah, like, I love what you guys do. Like, I want in. I want to sponsor this. This is amazing. And slowly we were able to build up our track workers as sponsors and became like a snowball effect where one person will talk to another person and one company will talk to another company. And before we knew it, we had partnerships with like over 50 companies. That's the thing that I struggle with us around. What are you offering to them exactly? Are they basically looking and saying, I love this movement, I want to fund you, or are you giving something that can actually incorporate and be part of their business? That's both. It depends on who you talk to. I feel like the smaller businesses have a lot more to lose and a lot more to try to have you help them. So in that sense, we do pay a lot more attention to smaller businesses. But to our surprise, we found that big companies oftentimes have a multicultural department fund where they just literally want to help your mission. And the thing they're really looking for is like logo placements, announcements. But you'd be surprised that a lot of these companies do have this arm that really wants to help you. And that's the part that still blows my mind to this day. So what's the trick to reaching to them and getting them to actually hear your story? I think the first part is building a relationship with them and having them understand the significance of your platform and how engaged your audience is. I think the first part is reaching out. The first part is like not taking it anyway, but offering them value, showing that whatever you're doing is life-changing and game-changing and personally change your life. Once you change their life, they're a lifelong fan. They want to support you in any way that they could. At what point did you think, I'm ready to move out of the U.S.? to Southeast Asia? It occurred to me when I was going out to all these galas and networking events that I was meeting the same people over and over. There's nothing wrong with that. I love the people I met so far. Like They're really, really good people. People that I never thought I could connect with ever in my life that are like friends of me now. And then I realized like 
a lot of these programs in the U.S. and these organizations are catered towards the same group of people. And there has always been that feeling in my mind that the world is so much larger than just where I am, the city that I'm in. I want to impact more people in the world. And I think about that my times when I was traveling after real estate to like Southeast Asia, like Thailand and whatnot. In mind that Thailand has developed a lot, by the way, since I last visited. Super nice now. But at the time, I was thinking to myself, because I remember going to a foot massage place and talking to a girl that was massaging my foot. And then I realized how smart she was. She was super smart. And it made me really sad that because of circumstances and being born in certain places, like you are limited to less and less opportunity. And that was almost like the first catalyst that occurred to my mind. I was like, what if they have the same resources and knowledge and connections that quote unquote we have in the Western world? What would they be able to achieve in their life? So that thought was always resonating with me because I felt like I built up a pretty sizable community and connections and resources in the States. I wanted to now bridge the gap between the East and the West together. And I felt like this has been a challenge where no one had ever taken on ever to really, really connect the East and the West together. And one of the ways that we're trying to do that, and we have started already, by the way, pretty fortunate that our letters are AHN. So very similar to, I mean, I've always been a fan of TED. I love TED. And then I realized that going to a platform, you don't see a lot of Asian repetition on the platform. I wanted to have a platform where we can hear stories from not only Asian Americans, Asian Australians, whatever, but about Asians around the world. And being here in Southeast Asia over the last six, seven months, I realized that the rate of innovation is far beyond anyone ever imagined in the West to be. People here are so smart, so driven. And unfortunately, when you ask them to come on stage to speak in a second language they're not familiar with, they're going to sound, no matter how smart they are, they're not going to sound very smart. So the whole idea behind us being here is because we want to create a platform where people can hop on stage to share their story in their native language and then have that be translated to all different languages, truly connecting. We want to be the true super connectors of the world, right? And once we have that, we can connect the East and the West together. And that's our vision. How is that different from EST Media? I think for us, we're doing it in a way where we have hired speech coaches. You know, shout out if Jill, you're listening to this podcast, shout out to Jill. Jill is a speech coach. So essentially, we asked our speakers to work with her for two months before hopping on stage. And the whole point of us doing that is because we realized that Asian people could use a little bit of help public speaking. Anything that we can do to help push our community forward in terms of these soft skills, lifelong skills, speaking abilities, speaking abilities is so crucial to success, will help you do that. And that's how we feel like we have always led with our heart. We have always led with good intentions. And we want to make sure that we're able to impact more and more people and lives around the world. Well, what is Vietnam like? Because you hear about Vietnam a lot. It's where the crypto yeah. guys are. It's a new startup hub. It's very exciting. No one yeah. ever sleeps. You want them to do a dress for you. And yes, they'll be done the next day. No problem. What is it like being on the ground there? Yeah. It is, for lack of a better term, it was pretty chaotic for me when I got here. People here are relentless. Like They would go out and get it. There's no such thing as a no. It's almost like, fine, I'll figure it out. Even though you keep telling them no. <laughs> it's crazy. We call it, quote, unquote, the Vietnam way. 
with me the music way. There's like nothing's ever impossible. You just have to look at it from a different angle or try a little bit harder. <laughs> you know, it's kind of crazy because the city is beaming with energy. That is like one of the most vibrant energy I felt in any parts of Asia, mainly because the population itself is so young. You look around, you see more kids, more young people than any older people. The ratio just completely outnumbers the older folks. And you feel like there's a wave of change coming. Because when you talk to them, to my surprise, at least, everyone speaks English relatively well when they're younger. There's a lot of like international schools there. The education system is getting better. A lot of Vietnamese who are educated overseas are not coming back. And they're starting their own companies. They're bringing their own Western ideologies to the country. So I do expect Vietnam to rapidly change in the next five to 10 years. And this is also the reason why everyone's so attracted to this energy, vibrancy, and workforce. I am thinking of going to Vietnam for a couple of weeks because this sounds very exciting. I've never been. I don't know how to get plucked into that community as well because I don't know anyone. I imagine people listening probably would feel the same way. What to advise for us in terms of just getting plugged in? I mean, going to a new city, but how do I find the yeah. right people and the community? I was, yeah, I would say the first thing is just really enjoy the culture first. I think that meeting people is one thing, but understanding and kind of feeling, you know, the city vibes is more important. And once you kind of get yourself acquainted to like the food, the air, the hustle, the culture, it's a really fast paced place to be. Like if you're not mentally ready coming here, then obviously you won't really enjoy your time here. After you're able to get acclimated to the environment, now like try to get yourself plugged in. I think what the Vietnamese community does really well is that they're still very active on Facebook. So there's a lot of like professional networking events just by typing into the Facebook chat or Facebook search engine and seeing all these events pop up. Particularly, shout out to the overseas Vietnamese LinkedIn and Facebook group. They do a tremendous job of hosting very vibrant, awesome events for overseas Vietnamese and native Vietnamese in Vietnam. So whenever they're hosting events around the world, check them out. Amazing. And I love the reason why you do this as well, is because as you said earlier, there wasn't enough representation of these amazing Asian leaders in the mainstream media. I'm sure yeah. you must have encountered lots of Asian leaders who are very much the idea of being unafraid to speak out, to be leading in the front. Can you give some examples of these leaders and why they stand out for you? Yeah, I think what I love so far is seeing so much more of these leaders now. Four years ago, it was really hard to like have a prominent Asian base that most people can coordinate to. It was like, hey, are you Bruce Lee? Hey, are you Jackie Chan? It was like the two things that people, sometimes people sprinkle in, are you Jet Li? You know, <laughs> like... You're not even Chinese. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like nowadays it's like a lot more Asian people everywhere all at once winning all these different awards. You know, Michelle Yeoh and... Queen Wan, I forgot his name, sorry. He's another actor. Yeah. You know, he's like Simu, Aquafina, a lot more like Hassan, the comedian guy. You see a lot more representation now, and it feels so good to like finally see that vibrancy in our community. That we're more than just Jackie Chan and Jet Li and <laughs> Bruce Lee, you know? But still, we have a long, long way to go, right? A very long way. We're still very much correlated to a few faces in mainstream media. I still feel like we have a long way to go to a place that we really want to be. What about on the personal level? Is Could you name one person that you know personally who you think is an outstanding leader? Is your chance to shout out to them. <laughs> uh, 
I don't know if you'll ever listen to this podcast, but I do respect this other Asian organization leader, Bing Chen, a founder of Gold House. So shout out to him. He really inspires me a lot. Everything about his demeanor, the way he speaks, he has a lot of vocabulary that I can only dream of having in my arsenal. <laughs> I feel like he's done a phenomenal job at Gold House. Fantastic. And is there anything that people listening can help you with? I think that if you guys offer your support by just listening to the stories in the Asian Hustle Network and telling your friends about them and knowing that this is a place of not taking but giving, and that would be tremendous of what we're trying to do in the world and trying to spread our message of uplifting the community. Brian, thank you so much for your time here. I love to end all my interviews with the same question. So the first is this, do you feel like you have found your why? It was something that I struggled with for such a long time. But nowadays, no matter how long my days are, no matter how stressful I am, I still feel incredibly grateful to be even be in this position. So the answer is yes. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? That is a very, very tough question to ask. I feel like the legacy that I want to leave behind is something that the next generation will benefit from, right? I want us to no longer have this preset prejudice or hatred or racism against each other, but to be able to put aside our differences, not only within the Asian community, but towards other communities as well, that we're more similar than we are different. I want people to keep that in mind. And what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? Great question. I think the most important quality of a successful person is consistency and persistence, right? I think you have those two qualities where you don't give up easily and you understand that it's a slow process to get to where you want to get, but understand and fully believe that you will eventually get there. That goes a long way with success. And where can people go to connect with you, find out more about Asian Hustle Network, support, all the links? Yeah, I'm, I've been very, very active on LinkedIn, by the way. So you can find me through at Brian Bong Pham. Or you can search up Asian Hustle Network and message any Asian Hustle Network account and more than likely I will see that. And that was the end of episode 113. The show notes and transcript can be found at sothismywhy.com forward slash 113. Did you enjoy this episode? I've shared a lot more stories, frameworks and hacks used by successful people and details about upcoming Steamy guests and Steamy Hangouts in the weekly Steamy newsletter. So if you want a copy of that newsletter, just head over to the show notes and subscribe. And do stick around for next Sunday, because we'll be meeting a former ex-convict in Singapore. His father was an opium addict, and this guest very quickly became one too. At age nine, he joined a gang because he didn't want to be bullied, and was even part of an illegal passport syndicate. He took a stint in Thailand, which allowed him to realize that this wasn't the life that he wanted to lead. After many tries... Elvin became sober, but he still maintains really strong relationships with his former brothers, who respect and bless Elvin for all his efforts in helping people to overcome their drug addiction, and also going back into prisons to help them as well. If you don't already know, Steamy is all about shedding light on the popular, but also the highly unconventional stories, because we believe that there is something to be learned by each and every person, including ex-convicts. It's going to be a great episode. So do stick around, listen to Nottle Chu's episode because he's also another ex-convict with a great story. You can find Nottle's episode in episode 102, which is sodismaway.com forward slash 102. And if you haven't done so already, please do subscribe to Steamy 
and see you next Sunday.